Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend Eli McCann. Welcome to the podcast, Eli. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. We're recording here in our home in Salt Lake City on a beautiful spring day. I'm kind of glad winter's over. Um, let me introduce Eli and then um, I'll give him a chance to sort of make sure that a rough bio is okay. And then I want to talk about why I'm doing a podcast with someone in a same-sex marriage. But Eli, I've known about Eli for quite a while. Um, he's a Twitter legend. We'll link to his Twitter um, bio in the show notes. You connect with Eli. But Eli's 37 years old. Um, he grew up in Salt Lake City area, South Jordan, Bingham High. Um, has an undergraduate degree at BYU, also um, a graduate degree at law school at BYU. Um, he served a mission in Ukraine, and we will probably talk about that. He's been part of a major fundraiser here in Utah that raised $155,000. Well, I think that will come up in the podcast, just the good work that he and others are doing to raise money for um, the Ukraine people. He um, professionally is a lawyer here in Salt Lake cities with an established law firm. And he also, as a side gig, if this is the right vocabulary, teaches law at the University of Utah. Would you call it a side gig or your main thing? <laughs> a side gig. I like that. You like almost it? a hobby. Yeah. How many classes do you teach? I just teach one class. I teach uh, First Amendment, specifically the religion clauses of the First Amendment. That's awesome. Do you get good parking? I get decent parking. I park right at the stadium just next to the law school. You get one of those special non-student passes. I'm not that special, no. Well, I wish you got a really good pass. Yeah, me too. Um, as I mentioned, Lila, Eli, how long have you and your husband, Skylar, been married? We've been married almost three years. And um, you could hear a little bit more about Eli's story on the Questions from the Closet podcast, episode 74. I listened to that this morning. It's a terrific podcast titled, How Should I Come Out to My Family? We may touch on some of that. Um, but I thought it was a terrific podcast, just how you came out to your family, terrific insights. And so, and including, why don't you just touch on this? Cause it, um, it's something I stopped this morning, in my walk and texted to myself is the tone of coming out to your family, set the tone for the whole conversation that, um, do you remember that concept in that podcast? Just mm -hmm. start there for, and then I'm going to talk a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the things that I've talked about for a number of years with people, especially I've had closeted people come to me and ask for advice of how, how can I, how do I come out to my family? What is the best way to do this? And one of the big things that I have really tried to help other people feel or understand that I thought was really helpful to me is that sometimes we approach those conversations in a way, like we think we're sharing bad news with the world. And we, we sort of walk into it in, a, in this negative space where it's, it's a, I need to tell you something about myself and I hope you can still see me the same way after this. And that sets a tone that is really difficult to overcome. And for me specifically, and what we can talk a little bit more about this uh, later, but I had to get myself into a really positive headspace before I felt comfortable coming out. And specifically, I needed to see my coming out as good news and not bad news. Uh, I, I'm a gay man. And for me at this point in my life, that is one of my favorite things about myself. I, I wouldn't trade that. And so going into that conversation with the tone of, I have something I want to share with you and I'm excited to share this with you. And I'm excited to bring you into this part of my life. Sets such a different stage with our family members and friends than that negative, 
sort of, I hope that you can still see me the same way type of tone. I thought that was just terrific. So please check out episode 74 of Questions from the Closet. Ben Shalotti is pretty open that he was not like you when he came out to his family and how that, and I just was very interesting to hear that. Um, Listeners, I'm an active Latter-day Saint. Some would say, well, why are you having um, a guest on your podcast that's in a same-sex marriage? Obviously, that's outside of the teachings of our church. And I just want to kind of talk about that. I I want to see us all as the same human family. And Eli and I are members of the same human family. I also like this concept, unity and diversity, that we can be unified even if we're different. And I think what you've done with the Ukraine fundraiser is a great example of that, Hmm. is we became unified um, for greater, holier causes. Um, I also, listeners, attended my 40th high school reunion. That's a long ways off, Eli, for you. (laughs) For me, that happened recently. And I was probably aware of the couple of gay men. I didn't know how to interact with them. All I knew was kind of withdraw and there were probably three or four, but at our high school reunion, we did a slideshow of all those that were gone. And every one of those men were gone. Mm. And the couple that I knew about, the only sort of path they knew, Eli, in 1979 when I graduated was sort of going to big metro cities. That's probably the only place they felt they could belong. Mm-hmm. And I recognize with legal same-sex marriage being legal, that that opens a door that wasn't open to the people of my age and you will be at your 40th high school reunion mm-hmm. and you'll bring your husband. And, um, I just sort of mourned as I saw those faces come up. And so I'm glad that you have a path that people my age in 1979 didn't. I think your story will help others make a, an informed decision. There's a lot of Latter-day Saint, gay and lesbian that are kind of at this fork in the road. Um, you know, the different choices that you can make and I invite people to make a really informed decision. Of course, I'll invite everybody to follow teach, teach church teachings, but part of the doctrine I believe in is you have agency to decide your best path forward, and I'm going to support you and walk with you. And um, that kind of leads to my next thought. I'm not going to make you the hero today and the villain tomorrow. Mm. Um, that's one of the reasons I want you on the podcast, because you're the same wonderful human being. I didn't know you. <laughs> You know, back when you served your mission in Ukraine, but um, you're the same really good person contributing our society, helping. And I don't want to see this shift that sometimes occurs when someone goes from celibate and fully participating in the church to in a same-sex marriage. And we sort of make you the hero one day and the villain the next day. I want to humanize people like you. So that's a little bit about why I want listeners to hear your story. Are you okay with all that? Or do you have yep. any thoughts to clarify or wow. add or subtract? I think we're good. Thank you. And I, I am about to take my husband to my 20th high school reunion this summer. And uh, yeah, it's 10 years ago when I was at the 10-year high school reunion, I didn't imagine that this would be my 20 high, 20 year high school reunion experience. Um, but I'm obviously really grateful that it is. Yeah. And I just, I like the idea that if you're going to choose this road, you're going to be in a sort of a monogamous, long-term relationship. There's lots of ways to sort of do this. But I think, you know, sort of being in a same-sex relationship, but I like where you and Skylar are um, in a monogamous, committed, long-term relationship. Is that the right vocabulary, Eli, I'm using? Yeah, yeah. you know, I, I think for me, I have always in my life valued the idea of marriage, you know, and, and part of what was really 
heartbreaking about you know becoming an adult and realizing that I am gay and this isn't going away was uh, maybe I'm never going to be able to have that thing that I've always wanted, which is marriage, that family. And for me, it was such a beautiful experience to then get to a point where I realized that, no, I, I actually could have that. There was a, an avenue for me to have that. And it was through marrying Skylar, you know, who's a terrific husband who drives me absolutely crazy and makes me laugh all the time. And yeah, it's, it's a, a relationship that is fulfilling and beautiful in, in all of the ways that I had always hoped I would eventually find. I love that. And listeners, as you check out, and some of you may be on Eli's Twitter feed, one of the things is you normalize this relationship. The things you joke about on Twitter with your husband are the same things that straight couples joke about. Um, you've, it's sort of, I, that's one of the things that I love about your Twitter feed is, and people really pick up on that. Yeah. Well, it is a normal relationship, you know, and, uh, it's there, there are, you know, relationships come in all shapes and sizes, of course. Uh, my, my marriage with Skylar looks very similar to a lot of the straight marriages that I'm familiar with in my life. Uh, in fact, my marriage to Skylar looks a lot like my parents' marriage and his parents' marriage in a lot of ways. We see uh, that we have fully become our parents in a lot of ways. And so, you know, part of, I'm a, I'm a storyteller. I like jokes. I like telling humorous stories. And part of the really fun thing about being married to Skylar is he provides me a lot of great content. And so it's, it's such a joy for me to be able to share what I find to be kind of the fun parts of our marriage with the, with the rest of the world. One of the things when I first started to connect with this space, and then I want to have you kind of start your story chronologically. Maybe you can take us back to high school and um, coming to turn awareness of your sexual orientation. Is I used to see this phrase, the gay lifestyle, and then somebody showed me a, a billboard that said the gay lifestyle, and it said Monday, do the wash, Tuesday, go out to dinner, Wednesday, and it just sort of normalized um, a same-sex marriage, the same as a straight marriage, that we kind of do the same things mm -hmm. um, in these marriages. And that's one of the things your Twitter feed is sort of normal, you know, because it is just to your point. So, mm -hmm. yeah. But take us back to wherever you want to start. You could start start in high school and come, or you could start in college, wherever you want to start, just maybe chronologically is just your aging up and yeah. becoming aware of your sexual orientation. Yeah. Well, what I'll say is, you know, I think people kind of figure out that they're gay at different ages and in different ways. And they, you know, a lot of that depends on what kind of exposure you have to different types of people. Uh, I was in kindergarten and was well aware that I had crushes on the boys in class and not the girls. And I, there was something within me. I didn't know what gay people were, you know, this is 1989 or whatever year that was. I didn't know what gay people were. I lived in Utah, you know, was sheltered in that way. But I, I somehow had the, the wisdom to know that I shouldn't tell other people this. I, I, I just kind of somehow knew like, uh, this, isn't, this isn't quote unquote normal. And so I just really kept it to myself as a child. And I, I went through elementary school and middle school, always knowing that I had crushes on the boys and not the girls. And I think there was a little part of me that wondered, well, maybe this is something that will just kind of change over time. I don't know. Um, but by the time I was really kind of in the middle of middle school, uh, that curiosity or that realization started to turn to fear. And there was a lot of fear 
And I started having these experiences where I was having chronic stomach aches at school that baffled my teachers and baffled my parents. And I, nobody really knew what was causing them. And I, of course, was going through just severe anxiety over the fact that, wait a minute, like uh, something's wrong with me, I think, you know, this is something that's wrong. And what does this mean for my future? And it was around middle school, around that time that I really first started figuring out that gay people existed in the first place. You know, I would see depictions of them in media and they weren't good depictions. You know, this is the nineties. I I would see sort of conversation about how uh, gay people were wrong, or this was a, a thing that was wrong. And, you know, Mind you, this is back at a time when neither of the major political parties were really supportive of LGBTQ rights. And so there was sort of a national consensus that treated this thing like it was a sickness, that it was something that was really wrong and really bad. And then, of course, I was also simultaneously receiving church messaging that was uh, at that time in the 90s, the lessons that, that I was receiving were, well, Satan, one of the things that Satan is trying to do is convince people that they're born gay. But no, of course, nobody is born gay. Uh, you know, people choose to be gay and that's a wicked choice. And, and so I was hearing that kind of messaging. And I, I mean, I remember just so vividly sitting in Sunday school lessons and hearing my teachers say that and believing it myself and thinking, okay, I don't know exactly what that means for me because I don't feel like I chose this, but apparently I'm, I wasn't born this way. So I've done something wrong along the way. And here I am, you know, 13 years old, feeling like there was something that it was just inherently wrong with me. And so the, this, this was a really, I think, a very difficult, challenging part of my life, you know, growing, growing through those teenage years and really grappling with that and dealing with just unbelievable crippling anxiety over what all of that felt like. And so by the time I, you know, graduated high school, went and did a year of college and then uh, went and served a mission in Ukraine, in in Western Ukraine. And going on a mission almost felt like a relief in some ways because it felt like I was getting a two-year break from having to think about this. You know, it was two years where nobody was pressuring me to go on dates. And in fact, I wasn't even allowed to think about going on dates. And it was two years where I could just focus on something else. And hopefully at the end of those two years, I would come out with some kind of realization that would help me figure out how I was supposed to navigate the rest of my life. And so I I did this two-year mission in Ukraine. It was, you know, something that I am very, very happy that I did. Uh, It connected me to a people and a culture and um, some experiences that have been very valuable uh, to me throughout the last uh, couple of decades. And it gave me some, you know, life experience that I think has been really valuable to me as well. But when I came back from Ukraine and got back to the United States, uh, there was waiting for me this terror once again. And that terror was, well, now what are you, you, now what are you going to do? Because now you're, you've entered the phase in your religious culture where you're supposed to date women and find one to marry as quickly as possible. You know, there's a certain pressure to do that. And there was nothing that sounded worse in the world to me than finding a woman to marry. And yet I so desperately wanted 
marriage and I wanted a family, but not in the way that I was being pushed toward. And there, over the over those next few years, when I as I was in college, I just sort of had that anxiety continue to build and grow and that fear. And I would have these experiences where I'd wake up in the middle of the night and just this absolute panic and absolute terror. I, terror is the only word that I think I can really use to adequately describe it because I just thought, well, what's, what is my plan here? I, I know that I can't marry a woman. You know, I, I know that I can't do that. I, I can't do that to, uh, to a woman. I can't do that to myself. I felt like that, that just felt like a, a thing that I, I myself could not do. And so if I'm not doing that, then I, I guess I'm just alone for the rest of my life. Uh, because at that point, I certainly was not even remotely considering leaving the church, you know, that in my mind, I thought I will always be, you know, in this church that I love. And so I'm just alone for the rest of my life, which sounded absolutely terrible. And also being alone for the rest of my life wasn't a part of the plan of salvation that I believed so firmly in. And so it was just sort of several years of just thinking through that circle over and over again and just wondering, well, what is, what is my life? It's only gotten more and more depressing as I've gotten older. And is it just going to continue getting worse and worse and worse until I die and that's it? And all to what end? I didn't end up living the plan of salvation anyway because I didn't build this family. And so my biggest coping mechanism through all of that was I just wanted to distract myself as much as possible. And the way I would distract myself is, well, I'll just, I'll take on as many activities as I can in my life. I had a full class load, of course, in school. I was during college working three jobs. Um, I participated in clubs. I fulfilled my callings dutifully and uh, just kept myself as busy as possible. Because if I had, you know, all of these tasks that I was having to run through, then it was sort of a way to keep my mind from that terror. Um, and I, I graduated uh, college and then went to law school immediately and did the same through my three years of law school. I just took on as much as I possibly could, kept myself as busy as I possibly could. And <clears throat> by the time law school ended, I was sort of seeing that graduation date as a terrifying deadline because I thought, well, I've, I've been able to distract myself with, these, with education as much as I can. But once I finish this, then I just move into true adulthood I get my, you know, whatever nine to five job, and then I just live alone for the rest of my life. And then, you know what? And that was an extremely terrifying thing for me. And so I, I graduated law school in 2011. And it was finally then when I graduated that I began, truly began the very, very slow and painful process of coming out to myself and then coming out to others and figuring out what to do with my faith around that. So um, in late 2011, I uh, started finally, I, I wasn't ready to have a conversation with myself about what my relationship with the church would look like. I, I still firmly had in my mind, I, I, I always have to stay in the church, but I finally let myself start thinking about, okay, would it be helpful at some point 
to at least acknowledge that you are gay and tell other people. And, you know, up to that point, up until 2011, it, I was never once tempted to tell anybody that I was gay. I wouldn't even put those own, those words really in my own mind. Um, but I finally started thinking, you know, maybe at some point, this is something that I should address. And that looking back, you know, over a decade later, that almost feels a little bit silly to me, uh, that that felt like progress at the time. Um, you know, th just having the thought of maybe one day, maybe I'll tell somebody about this. That felt like such a huge advancement uh, for me. And so I had um, at that time moved, moved to Salt Lake City. I, I worked for a year for, for a, a judge. Um, I had a good time with that job, but was really struggling with this part of myself. And <clears throat> I decided after that year that I really wanted to just get away from Utah for a little bit. Um, I felt like I needed to get away from everybody that I knew. I needed to kind of take a break from, from being around the, the space and the people that I was used to and go somewhere to just have uh, some quiet time to figure out what is, my, what is my plan? What is my path? So I <clears throat> took a job in Palau. Uh, which is a country in the equatorial Pacific near the Philippines. <laughs> and uh, it was a legal job. Uh, I was a legal counsel for the judiciary of, of Palau. It was an odd job on this very tiny tropical island. Uh, and it was a very, very difficult year in a lot of ways. Um, but I, I went to Palau. I actually went to Palau with uh, somebody that I was in sort of a closeted relationship with, whom I had just met. Um, right before uh, going to Palau, uh, he, he came with me and uh, the two of us sort of lived in this kind of messy space together. Um, you know, we were uh, both, uh, me more than he, than he was, uh, we were both still in the church. We were still attending church. We were kind of in this weird closeted relationship that we were not really acknowledging to others and barely acknowledging to each other. And and um, it was, you know, looking back, and I, I think I really knew this at the time, it was a very unhealthy thing to be in a relationship like that, um, not, uh, not dis trying to disparage him in any way. We, it was unhealthy for both of us. And, uh, you know, <laughs> secret relationships are rarely a, a healthy thing. And so that, but that's what we were in. And it was really kind of a, an interesting experience to be in this sort of middle space where I was still fully in the church. I was still fully invested in that part of my spiritual self in that way. Um, but I was also kind of trying to develop a relationship that was never going to be accepted by that church. And so when, when I got to Palau, uh, I immediately got introduced to the little uh, LDS branch. There's one branch in the entire country. Um, they would have, you know, maybe 40 or 50 people meet each Sunday. Uh, little, little tiny branch. And I was quickly called as the young men's president. And um, my uh, partner at the time uh, who, who came to plow with me was called as the seminary teacher. And so we worked with the youth uh, and what we discovered was, and if you've ever been in a small branch like this, 
if you have any ability to serve, you kind of serve a lot. And so, although that was, you know, my only calling, I, I ended up doing an awful lot in that branch. Uh, you know, I would teach Sunday school most weeks. I would teach uh, combined youth lessons almost every week. I would speak in sacrament meeting at least once a month. I was the, you know, the ward organist, the branch organist, because um, there were only about two of us that had any proficiency at all in playing the piano. Uh, you know, I was organizing activities. I was sort of acting almost as a quasi counselor of the branch presidency because they didn't really have a full branch presidency. And it was a really good and positive experience. Uh, I really loved the people in that branch. Uh, I loved the, the teenagers that I got to know uh, and that I'm still close to. And I really, you know, enjoyed all of that. I enjoyed being a part of that. And it was fulfilling to me. And it was something that I wanted to do. And I sort of had this experience where this, this was kind of when things really finally came to a head for me, um, where I had a big epiphany about what my relationship with the church was probably going to have to look like going forward. And uh, the, the guy that I had moved to plow with uh, left the island a few months before I did. And so the last few months that I was there, I was living there alone. And I was starting to go through that terror cycle again, where I realized, okay, I'm about to move back to the U.S., and then what? And I was kind of doing that. And then what? Part of the, the conversation again. And I was really starting to get stressed and I wasn't sleeping and, and I was scared and terrified. And one night, uh, and your listeners might judge me for this a little bit, but one night I was in my apartment, it was a Saturday night. And I said, I really want to know what wine tastes like. And it was, this was a very, very out of character thing for me. And I promise there's a point to this story, <laughs> but I, I thought, I really want to know what wine tastes like. Very out of character. I had never, ever, ever wanted to try alcohol. I had not, you know, never thought that I would, but I was just sort of in this headspace of, I, I think, stress and fatigue and frustration and probably a little bit of anger at this point. And I was like, I'm going to try wine. And so I, I drove down the hill from where I lived to the grocery store. I walked into the grocery store. There was a wine display. I don't know the first thing about wine, of course. And I walked over and I grabbed a, a bottle of white wine. I, I, you know, I didn't even know that there were different kinds truly. And I, I still, I don't know what it was that I ordered and I'm sure it was terrible, but I grabbed it and I paid for it. And I kind of nervously went back to my apartment and it wasn't like I was going to have a party with this. It was almost, it was so clinical and so experimental. I'm just, I just want to know what it tastes like, you know? And, and there was sort of this thought within me and, you know, I was, I, I think trying to be playful with it in my own mind, but of course there was a, a dark undertone to it, which was, well, if I'm, if I'm damned anyway, then I might as well know what wine tastes like on my way out. You know, that was kind of where, where I was. And so I get to my apartment, of course, realize that you need a corkscrew to open this thing. I don't have a corkscrew, don't even know how to use one. And so I, I'm, you know, holding this bottle of wine. I have no idea how to open it. I'm trying to dig out the corkscrew with a, a butter knife. That's not working. I eventually break the top of the bottle off. And I drink this, whatever doesn't spill out from what I break, break the bottle off and got very drunk and ended up falling asleep. And the next morning I woke up and it was Sunday morning. I think church started at 10 o'clock and I woke up at nine or a little after nine. And I realized I have to get to church because I'm doing all of the things that day, 
right? And so I frantically get dressed and I'm driving down the hill from my apartment toward the, the branch houses. I'm like trying to tie my tie and, and I, I bust into the, the building and that day happened to be a day that we had a visiting general authority come to the branch. Um, it was somebody from the Quorum of the Seventy, and I actually don't even remember his name now. Um, but he was there with his wife. And that day, uh, I spoke in sacrament meeting, and I played the piano, and I taught the, a combined Sunday school lesson for second hour. And for third hour, this is back when there were three hours of church. Um, for third hour, I taught a combined youth lesson. And so it truly was like, a kind of an extreme day uh, where it was the Eli show at church that day. I just kind of did everything. And, and I remember during the second hour, I was teaching this combined adult Sunday school lesson. And I remember looking at the visiting general authority and spouse and they were holding hands and they were smiling and, you know, watching me teach this lesson. And I remember thinking, I wonder if they would be smiling, if they knew that I was a wicked gay dude who was drunk 12 hours ago. And there was kind of this, I don't even know if anger is the right word, but frustration maybe in me as I was watching them. And I was just, I just sort of felt like mad at myself and mad at them and mad at everything, mad at the whole system, mad at all of it, frustrated with it, sad about it. And, and I kind of felt like I've, spent three decades trying so hard to fit into this and I'm still not it. I'm still not enough. All of this that I'm trying to do and all of this service that I'm genuinely trying to give is still not enough because I'm still this wicked gay dude who was drunk 12 hours ago, you know, and, and they, they would so disapprove of all of this of me. And so we, we finish the three hour block and after church that day, the visiting general authority wanted to have a, a meeting with the, the branch leadership. And as the young men's president, I qualified as branch leadership. And so I, I was invited to participate in this meeting. And I think there were, you know, six, seven, eight of us uh, sitting around in these chairs. And we started the meeting. He said a prayer. And then he said, uh, well, I think we can all agree that Eli was the MVP today of, of church and everybody sort of laughed and it was, you know, he was nice. He was trying to give me credit for the fact that I had done a lot that day. And uh, in that moment, uh, it, it just wasn't, there was nothing funny or uh, I didn't feel like gratitude around that. And I know that he meant it from a place of gratitude, but when he said it, just this rage just sort of suddenly bubbled up in me. And I wanted to, and I didn't, and I'm, I think I'm glad that I didn't, but I wanted to yell at him and say, uh, it, he, he said, I, I think uh, it, we would benefit if every branch and ward in the church had an Eli in it, is what he said. And this rage bubbled up in me and I wanted to yell at him, well, every branch and ward of the church could have an Eli in it, but you are kicking us out. And you know, of course I hadn't been kicked out yet, but that was sort of felt like the inevitable plan for me because I couldn't. I couldn't contain this part of myself anymore. And once I didn't contain that anymore, then what? Then there's truly no place for me here. And I, the, the, the kind of, for lack of a better word, the insanity of that dichotomy that I saw and realized in that moment just made me feel so frustrated because I just thought I'm, I am doing everything that I can to be of value in this institution in this culture to be a part of it 
I, I want to be a part of this. You know, I want, I want to share the part of myself with these religious communities. I want to uh, grow and benefit from the people in these branches and wards that have a lot to teach me as well. But there's no way for me to be able to stay here and do this anymore. And there was something so devastating about that and earth shattering for me. And I, I drove away from the branch house that day. And that was, that was truly the moment that it finally occurred to me. This isn't Eli, this is not, this is not your life. This is not going to be your life going forward. And you've got to figure out a different path for yourself. Um, you know, I think that that's a, a hard realization for anybody to, to come to. Um, but two months later, I cleaned out my apartment on that hill in Palau. Um, I gave away a bunch of stuff and packed what I could. And I moved back to Salt Lake City. And once I got back to Salt Lake City, I finally, 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 finally did the work within myself to uh, not accept that I was gay, but embrace the fact that I was and appreciate what that meant. And I finally, for the first time, let myself start thinking about, okay, this is who I am. I am a gay person. What does that mean about me? What, in what ways has growing up as a closeted gay child affected who I am? And I started to realize that a lot of the things that I liked the most about myself were a direct result of the fact that I was gay. And I started to realize that I actually really quite liked gay people. Uh, I, I really like the stories of the people who have the courage to come out. I really admire that in people. And it was sort of inspirational, motivational for me to start to think about, well, how can I be more like that? How can I actually turn what has just been terror my entire life into an opportunity to have courage and to grow into the kind of person that I always wished I could be? And so I finally, 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 in that positive headspace and in that empowered headspace decided it's time for me to come out. It's time for me to tell my family that this is who I am. It's time for me to tell my friends that this is who I am. It's time for me to figure out what family looks like in this new life. And uh, unfortunately for my former religious self who really wanted to have and maintain that relationship with the church, it's time for me to finally walk away from that and find a different path toward peace because that one wasn't bringing me peace. So I just, on behalf of our listeners, great job just telling your story. You're very articulate. You have a gift of communication. Thank you. Um, I sort of want to visually see that hill where you were and just see that landscape. Maybe you and Skylar will go back one day. <laughs> we, we, did, we went back for our honeymoon, actually. You? There you go. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was interesting. Um, well, it, maybe I, I should say a couple of things first. You know, yeah, I, just keep telling your story. I don't want to lead your story. Yeah. Just wherever you want to go, you're do, I, you just kind of need Stop to Stop trying take, to take over, Richard. <laughs> so you could pick it up with Skylar in your honeymoon. Or you could just kind of well, talk chronologically like you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. I, or both. Yeah. I'll, 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 maybe I'll get to the, the honeymoon of it all because it was really kind of an interesting experience. But I, 
after I came out, so I, I really, you know, it was 2013, late 2013, early 2014. And when you are I, how old at this point? I was 30. Um, I came out to my parents two months before my 30th birthday. Okay. And uh, I am very, very, very fortunate in this LDS religious community that I grew up with incredible parents. My parents are incredible people. And I always knew, I, I wasn't afraid to come out to them. Uh, it, it, I, I had no fear that it was going to ruin our relationship or that they were going to be bad to me around this. I, I am very, very fortunate in that way. Um, my fear of coming out to them and to anybody uh, mostly was around my own kind of spiritual beliefs. You know, it, am I damning myself by embracing this part of myself in any way? So, you know, once I kind of broke that down and decided that that, that didn't make sense, uh, I wasn't scared to come out to my parents and, and my parents are very, very active LDS. Uh, they have been throughout my life. They still are. Uh, but they also, when I was growing up, they were very purposeful in making sure that we, their children understood that family to them came first before anything else. And so truly, if there was ever a, a conflict between a church obligation and um, an obligation to family, the obligation to family won out every time. That, that's, that's the kind of family that I grew up in. And so even though they're extremely devout, I knew I'm going to come out to them and they're going to have deep empathy for me and deep love for me. And they're going to, uh, they're going to want me to be happy and find peace. And they're going to be willing to listen uh, to me when I talk to them about what that looks like. And so I came out to them and they were, they were very supportive. Um, they just so immediately uh, told me that they were proud of me. And my, my mom made a comment to me that was really interesting, right? When I came out, I, I went to their house uh, one Saturday morning and I said, I need to tell you guys something. Uh, I'm incredibly gay. And my, my mom said, is that, is incredibly gay different than regular gay? And I said, no, I just, I just wanted to make sure you guys know that there's no question about it. And my mom, my mom kind of laughed and she said, okay, okay. And, and then she said, that something. is one of the best yeah. off the cuff yeah. <laughs> in the moment comments that just gives me and listeners an insight in your mom. Yeah. <laughs> and she could come up with that in yeah. that moment. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah, she's, she's, she's a wonderful person. She, but she said uh, to me right after I, you know, I, I came out, she said, well, now that you've told us, can you just relax and take a breath? And it, I didn't know that I had been seen by my parents in that way for all those years. You know, I, I had spent so much time, like I said, trying to distract myself and keep myself busy and, and stretched really, really thin. And my mom, I don't know if it was in that moment that she realized it or if this was something that she'd been thinking for a while, but she knew that that had been a coping mechanism for me. And that was something that she was worried about. And she just, she wanted me to, to get to a place of peace and she could see that I was absolutely not at a place of peace. And what was really, really interesting was very shortly after that experience of coming out to my family and coming out to friends, uh, I realized one day I had this kind of epiphany where I, I just felt so at peace about who I was and I felt so calm 
And I immediately, I had this thought come over me and the thought was, is this how everybody else feels all the time? And of course, everybody doesn't feel at peace all the time, but that that thought hit, hit me. And I realized in that moment that I don't think I had ever experienced peace before in my life. And it was very, it was kind of a, a weird realization for me that I, I had not experienced peace until I got the courage to step away from my faith and embrace this part of myself. And then suddenly it was like I'd become a different person. I wasn't angry anymore. I wasn't frustrated anymore. I didn't feel rage. I didn't feel that sadness about what my future looked like. I didn't feel terror. I wasn't waking up in, in terror anymore. The chron- chronic stomach aches suddenly went away. I wasn't constantly consumed with the thoughts of w- how bleak my future looked. And because of that, I was suddenly able to start becoming the kind of person I wanted to be. I was able to actually start thinking about other people. And I, I don't think that I had really done that very much up to that point because I was so self-absorbed and so consumed. And suddenly I was able to start engaging in the community in ways that mattered to me. And I was able to start building friendships and relationships in ways that I had always wanted to have friendships and relationships. And it was like coming out was what allowed me to finally become a good person. And coming out was what it took for me to finally become a person that I actually liked. You know, it was, it was like I, I got to this point suddenly where I was excited to hang out with myself for the rest of my life. And then up to that point, I did not want to hang out with myself for the rest of my life because I was a, you know, a sinking ship of a person. And so that was a, a really wild revelation to have. And, sh- you know, shortly it, it, around, around that time that I started coming out to my family and friends, I also started dating for the first time, truly openly, actively dating, no more secret relationships, no more of this closeted kind of one foot in the door uh, with, with religion. I'm just going to, I'm going to embrace this part of myself and I'm going to try and find a way to build a family that I want, that I want. And so I I started dating after a a couple of years of, of dating and having some, you know, kind of fun um, experiences in that world. Of course, we say sometimes, when, when you come out uh, at a later age, you know, not as a teenager, you sort of become a 16-year-old in a lot of ways when it comes to dating. And I, I really did feel like I was a 30-year-old who was dating like a 16-year-old in, in some ways because I had not had that kind of experience in my life before. Um, but after a couple of years of that, uh, I met Skylar. And Skylar wasn't living in uh, Salt Lake City. He was living in Madison, Wisconsin at the time uh, for work. Um, he had grown up in Portland, Oregon, in this kind of hippie family, uh, did not grow up religious, um, has, has never really been religious at all. And uh, we met while he was on a very, very short layover in the Salt Lake Airport. Uh, we met through Tinder, a dating app. And um, after a, a month or two of calling each other and chatting, uh, we ended up starting to visit one another. Uh, and this what I saw as a very, very impractical relationship turned into uh, a very real relationship. And um, after about a year, year and a half of doing that kind of long distance visiting one another thing, he ended up moving to Salt Lake City, relocating for work um, so that we could be closer to one another. 
Um, we got engaged not long after that, and then we got married. Uh, and you know, we're we're now a family. And uh, it's it's interesting. There's I, I don't think that everybody needs to be married to be full, you know, full as a person. I, I certainly don't think that that's the case. Um, but for me, now that Skylar is in my life, it sort of feels like I was only half a person until I met him. And uh, he's, he's this person that is a part of me now. And he, every day, lives his life in a way that compels me to want to be a kinder person to others. Um, he's, he's this person who... I'm his biggest fan in the world. I, I'm obsessed with this with this man. But he's this person who has this absolute deep sense of empathy for others that I think would be really nice for the rest of us to have. Um, he has this sense of of justice and morality, and he sees people. He sees the best parts of people. Uh, when he, when he looks at a person, he really only sees their best parts. And it, 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 being around somebody like that all the time has an effect of kind of rubbing off on you really in a way. Um, it, he's, he's had this ability that, you know, sometimes when I start to get angry about something that's happening in our community or start to get angry about the, the sort of faith journey of it all, he's, he's so good at reminding me about the people that are behind that um, and reminding me that you know, everybody's got these journeys that are not simple, um, and life experience that doesn't look like mine. And that has been a really helpful thing to have in a partner. Um, on top of all that, he's supremely funny and he's, he's just a, an adorable human being. Um, and he, he has just kind of decided to be the kind of person who will never simplify anyone or anything down to its worst components. Um, last night, I mean, just to, this is last night to give you one example. Um, we found out that a friend of ours who is active in the church, uh, she's in, has a calling in the Relief Society, uh, suddenly found out that she had to hurry and throw together a funeral for a ward member uh, within the next 24 hours. And, you know, I, I was kind of listening to her story like, oh, that sounds like it's going to be stressful. And Skylar's impulse, this person who has never been religious, has never been really connected to Mormonism in any way. And by the way, has, you know, been alienated by a lot of things that happen within that organization. And and has a lot of people within that organization who don't think very much of him and his his decision to uh, be in a gay marriage. Uh, that person, that man, as he's listening to our friend talk, immediately said, well, what can we do to help? Do you want me to take care of the food? I can do the food. I'll bring the food. I, I can take some time off uh, work tomorrow and you tell me what time and just where. And he was immediately coordinating and trying to figure out how to help with this Mormon funeral at, a, at an LDS church building. And you know, it's, it's sort of, once again, that same idea, you know, maybe a le less rage charge for me now that I had in Palau with the general authority, which is, well, wow, this organization is really missing out on not having Skylers in it. Um, because I mean, any church that was filled with people like him, 
would just be an incredible institution. Um, you know, he's, when you talk about what, you know, the definition of Christ-like is, or at least the one that I kind of grew up hearing about, um, I don't know anybody who is more Christ-like than the man that I'm married to. Uh, but that man it w- would not be allowed to join the church that I grew up in. And that's a really odd thing to, to kind of grapple with sometimes. Um, but so we, we got married in, in 2019 and we decided that we were going to take a honeymoon to Palau. And part of the reason why we did that is uh, one of Skylar's uh, college uh, classmates and, re- and really, really close friends is from Saipan, which is a neighboring island to Palau. And she was getting married a couple of months after we were in Saipan. So he said, why don't we go to her wedding in Saipan? We'll make this our honeymoon. And then we'll just fly from Saipan Island, hop over to Palau, and we'll spend you know, a week in, in Palau. And I was excited about this idea, but I was also I had some trepidation um, because my thoughts about Palau from the time that I had left it up until that point with Skylar, uh, there was a lot of angst around that part of my life. You know, it was sort of the 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 end of me being in the closet, and that was a really really hard year in a lot of ways for that reason, and. I didn't know if I really wanted to go back to that island. You know, I, I loved the people that I met there, um, but I, I sort of, it was almost like my memories of it were in black and white. Um, I, I don't know how else to describe it, but it, it, wasn't, it wasn't colorful. And I kept telling Skylar, I don't know why you'd want a vacation there. And he would say, well, it's a tropical island, Eli. Like, why wouldn't we want a vacation there? And I, I would tell him, well, you know, it's kind of it's not a, an easy place to be. And, you know, there's kind of a heaviness there. And, and, uh, and I, I don't know that I even fully realized that that was all, that was all within me. It wasn't, had nothing to do with Palau. It was about my own experiences there. But so we, we planned this trip. We decided to go and we got to Palau. And as it turned out, it was the most beautiful place I have ever seen. And like like he does with uh, all parts of my life, I suddenly saw Palau with color. And, uh, you know, we, we spent the week there and just sort of unpacking and unloading a lot of that heaviness that I had grappled with while I was there. And there was something incredibly cathartic for me in that moment to go back the last time I was there, you know, I was a really, really broken person who didn't know what his future was going to look like. And then now suddenly I was there with this family that I had always wanted. And I was suddenly there in this place of peace, a place that I my entire life had wanted to find. And I think, you know, that was an experience that I wish I could give so many others in this community who are struggling with what I was struggling with at that time, I wish that I could give them that experience. And I wish that I, I wish that I could somehow take people who are grappling from that place where I was grappling from in 2011, 2012, and just show them this is what life looks like with color. And you can actually find that color in your life too. It's just a great segment, a great podcast. Um, 
this is where listeners, I hope I'm going to ask some questions you might have, if you like. Um, but just some notes I wrote down is Bryce Cook introduced me to the concept of the double bind, father of two gay sons. Help me just understand the double bind you're in, where you'd at one point love to fully participate in the church. Obviously, you have for decades and would love to not be alone for the rest of your life. And for a straight Latter-day Saint, they're not in the double bind, but you were. And then you use the word terror over and over again. And I like you using that word. I think it's really appropriate for the reality of your situation. And and it may not be terror in that moment, but it may feel in that moment. It's just terror of your future mm-hmm. um, and having to live with that for a couple decades. I love the kind of the, I've talked about this listeners, the bottom of the iceberg concept. A therapist introduced me to that is sort of, Often what's going on, we see at the top of the iceberg, but there's something else at the bottom of the iceberg. And your mom knew something was at the bottom of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. And moms sort of have really good intuition a lot of the times. I know my wife does. She picks up things that I would never pick up. Mm. And I like the way that she always knew there was something. And then I love that you just shifted from terror and anxiety to peace. Mm-hmm. And to me, I look for the fruits of um, people's experiences. And there's obviously incredible fruits of this relationship of your story. I like people as part of their own agency here in mortality to find their own path and to the works best for them. And I think the rest of us are here to support people. And I've sensed you've had a number of people do that. There's probably been some people that have pulled away and, and judged you. I love, um, I love this. I've always felt like if your path listeners is Eli type path, the same sex relationship. You ought to approach this fork in the road where you're your very best personal self. You're in the very best spot you can be um, and not be in a vulnerable spot. Um, It sounds, and I think by the time you started dating Skylar, you were your best personal self um, in the sense that you were ready to be on that road. And that he, I've always felt healthy relationships are one plus one equals three. The synergy of, and it seems like you and Skylar have that. Mm. And just the way you talk about him in such terms that you're a better person, you're his biggest fan. And so I just love the nature of your relationship. And it's not my job, your listeners, even though I'm, I'm giving you a lot of support for your relationship, no one can really judge a person's relationship. I think our job is just support people mm-hmm. on what they feel is their path forward. and. And not look over the shoulder hoping it'll fail or trying to figure out it's not a real relationship or there's got to be something here that's not working. And just trust you that knew you know you the best and you know your best path forward. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love, and I think Skylar's been accepted and to tell us a little bit about what he's doing professionally right now, because this is kind of cool news. Yeah, he's a, he's, he's a smarty pants. And <laughs> so it, when, when, when he and I met, he was working for a medical software company and, and he was really good at his job, but he sort of felt like he was so interested in the science behind medicine. And so he decided uh, at age 29 that he would uh, go to, to medical school. And, uh, wow. yeah. And so, you know, he was, he was an old, old med student, you know, it, most of his classmates were, um, five, six years younger than him. Uh, but he applied to medical school. Unfortunately, uh, fortunately he got into university of Utah just down the street from where we live. Um, and so he's, he's been in medical school for four years. It's he's, really hard to get in the university of medical school from I, what I know. It's competitive. You know, this, all of this is really, really competitive. And, 
Um, and so, but he's, you know, he's, he's a really bright person. He's extremely charismatic. He, you know, he presents well. And so I had all the faith in the world that he could do it. Uh, and, uh, so yeah, so he, he went to medical school and we've been doing that for four years. He's graduating next month. Uh, and I can't believe that it's, it's about to come to an end. Uh, but we just found out that he's going to be doing a residency in dermatology for the next four years in Salt Lake City. So we're, we're staying here for that. Uh, we feel extremely fortunate for that. That was another really competitive thing that he, you know, he, he would, if he was here, he would down, downplay all of this um, and he would be blushing. The reality is it was extremely competitive for him to get this residency. And I'm very, very proud of him. Uh, he worked really hard at it. Uh, and, and so we were going to be doing that for the next four years. So that, that's what he's up to professionally. And then he and I, you, you know, we're, we're hobbyists. We have a lot of kind of hobbies and we like to engage in the community in, in various ways. And so um, he and I together do some creative projects. Uh, I do, I run a storytelling show. Yeah, tell us about some of those. I'd love to connect any listeners with what you're doing. Oh, sure. Area. Sure. Yeah. So um, I, I, I've been writing a lot for many years. I, since I was a child, I just always loved writing, creative writing, and especially humor writing. I really like humor writing a lot. And so for years, I've been maintaining a, a website where I do a lot of kind of humor writing about what, what I'm up to and now a lot about what Skylar and I are up to. Um, but about five or six years ago, I decided to start a storytelling podcast and start finding other people to just tell mostly humor stories, just fun stories on kind of any topic. And so um, that podcast is called Strangerville, and I've been doing it for a number of years. It's been a, an awful lot of fun. Uh, and every week we release a, just kind of a new story from somebody somewhere in the world um, that we've recorded with them. And then if, about four or five years ago, I decided to create a live version of that podcast and just create a live storytelling show. And what we do is uh, we find four storytellers for each show. Uh, we have them work on putting together kind of a 15-minute story on, on any topic. We workshop it with them. We help them practice it, um, you know, craft it and so forth. And then we have them take the stage and, and deliver these stories. And most of them are kind of humor, humor stories in nature. Um, and we do that show every few months in Salt Lake City. Uh, and we release the, the recordings of the stories on our weekly podcast as well. And so Skylar and I, Skylar helps me with that a lot. We, we kind of do those events together. Uh, we engage in kind of creative projects in that way. Um, both of us are also very involved in LGBTQ advocacy in the community. Um, I'm on the, the board of Equality Utah, and I do a lot of work there. Um, Skyler helps me with a lot of that work. And then he also uh, helps run what's called the PrEP Clinic, which is kind of an AIDS, HIV-focused clinic um, on education and, and medication for people. Um, so kind of medical, medicine-based. And so we we do that kind of advocacy work. Um, it's something that matters a lot to us. And then we try to, to be politically involved is another big kind of uh, hobby for the two of us as we, we stay really involved in local politics and, and um, support candidates and campaigns that we care about. Um, and so that's, that's kind of what we're up to uh, between that. Uh, raising two really naughty puppies that run our entire lives. And, and that's fun too. Listeners will link to the um, the things that 
um, Eli mentioned in the show notes so you can connect with the work he's doing there. Um, you're not a one-dimensional guy, Eli. Um, you and Skylar are doing a lot of good things and using your talents. I think we're all born with talents, and I think part of our mission here on Earth Life is how we're going to use those talents to lift the burdens of others. Mm. I've always felt that's part of mortality is lift the hands of those. And it seems like you and Skylar are doing that in lots of different areas. Um, if you've got time, I'd love to talk about Ukraine. Yeah. Just um, we, you know, I think listeners and me are just heartbroken. And you've lived in Ukraine. You know these people. One of the Twitter thread threads you shared just put tears in my eyes. Where you talked about how I hope I can remember it enough that you can build on it. Is just this woman that took you from house to house or something. Mm. Um, just part of their culture of just how welcoming they were to you yeah. as a missionary. So anything you want to talk about Ukraine, just go for yeah. it. Yeah, Ukraine is, it's an unbelievable place. And I, one of the, the, this last month has just been like, I feel like I'm living inside of a nightmare. I really do feel like I've been in a nightmare for the last month. Uh, but one of the very, very small positive things that has come out of this for me anyway, is seeing uh, people around me realize how incredible of a country Ukraine is and how incredible uh, the people are there. Um, so, you know, I, I served my mission there in Western Ukraine from 2003 to uh, 2005. And, uh, and then after I, I stayed really connected with Ukraine, I've, I have been back many, many times. Wow. I've, I've been there to study um, I w- lived in Moscow briefly wow. and, and worked as a lawyer in Moscow, um, in 2009. And, uh, I've, I've kind of gone to Ukraine, um, in a, an educational way many times in, to study culture and history and language. And I've got a lot of friends there that I've stayed really connected with. And so it's, it's a place that has felt like a, a very, very big part of my last two decades. Um, Skylar and I have gone there together as well, and he's gotten to know a lot of the people um, in Ukraine as well. And so, you know, um, the the story that you're referencing, I think, is I've been sharing a lot of kind of experiences of things that have happened that I've witnessed in Ukraine over the last two decades. And one of them was what, as a missionary, when I was in Ukraine, there was this little village uh, where there were, I, I think, you know, uh, ten or fifteen church members lived in this tiny, tiny village. And it's this beautiful, beautiful farm country village. You would, we'd have to take this, this little van uh, bus, public bus out to, to this village that ran out there once a day. So we'd get out there in the afternoon and then it would pick us back up a couple of hours later. But so once a week we would go out there and we would just go from house to house um, in this village and visit uh, all of the people. But inevitably what would happen every time we did is we'd go to the first house and then that, that those people would want to come with us to the next house. And then those people would want to come to the next house. So by the time we got to the last house, it was just this big caravan of people walking through this farm country together. And I have the, the most vivid images of, I mean, the, those sunflower fields with blue sky over them um, out in the most beautiful place that you can imagine in these little cottages, all kind of poking up around the sunflower fields and, and other farmland and that, that kind of smell of earth and soil. And we're just walking through this feeling for me, so far away from home, you know, so, so far away from home in those moments. But, 
but in a really positive way. And we would get to that last house and everybody, these are people who saw each other every day. It's a tiny village, but they just all acted like they were being reunited after 50 years, every time they saw one another. And it was just this big caravan party of people. And to me, that's what Ukrainians are, is they're, they're, their sense of community is just unbelievable. It's unlike anything I've ever seen anywhere else in the world. Uh, they're, Ukrainians are, are an extremely blunt people. Um, you never wonder what they're thinking about you, it, which is one of the things I really like about them. I tend to be similar, actually. Um, I, I really like that about them. And if, if you're doing something wrong, they're not afraid to just tell you that's stupid. What you just did is stupid. You understand that, right? You know, they're, they're just kind of that way, but they're not vicious or mean about it in any way. It's just, their, their version of kindness is integrity and it's honesty in relationships. And so they, they'll show up for one another and they'll call one another out and they're willing to be called out. And it's just this really, really neat group of people. And so anyway, when um, in, in, in 2014, uh, there was a lot of consternation in Ukraine. Um, there were some, some really big protests. Uh, and some really violent uh, responses to those protests by the Ukrainian government. And what ended up happening in early 2014 was there was this battle uh, over the center of Kyiv between civilians and kind of armed forces that were acting basically on behalf of pro-Russian you know, influences. And uh, these civilians ended up without, you know, with, with makeshift, makeshift weapons ended up chasing out the armed resistance um, and burning down a, a good portion of their center uh, area in the process. And right after that, uh, probably two months after the fighting had ceased there, uh, I went over to Ukraine to visit some friends and I wanted to see kind of what had happened and, and reconnect with some people. And I ended up walking through that center square area that was still completely charred and barricaded with tires and, and furniture that people had kind of brought out. And the, the cobblestone had been ripped from the streets and piled high and used as weapons against armed forces. And, and I ended up walking through this and it was peaceful at that time, but people were still kind of there just sort of in the aftermath of it all, um, singing together and cooking over open fires. And it was this really surreal experience. And right at that time, the, the fighting between pro-Russian forces and, and Ukrainians shifted to the far eastern part of the country. And so what a lot of people maybe don't fully realize right now is that Ukraine has been fighting that war actually since 2014. It feels like a brand new war to us because, yeah, yeah you know, so much has happened in the last month, but this is actually a war that's been ongoing. And I've had friends go and, ha go and fight in that war and I've been worried about them for years. And so a month ago, you know, we, we've of course been hearing reports that troops were amassing around the borders and so forth. And I've been really worried about that. And I've been communicating with friends and in Ukraine and trying to understand how they're feeling and, and so forth. And that night that it was suddenly getting reported that there were bomb, bombs heard just outside of Kyiv, um, Skylar and I were watching the news and I just, this this sense of sadness, you know, just came over me. And we, like a lot of people, I think ended up staying up very, very late that night and just watching the news. And I was, you know, messaging with friends and, 
Um, some of them, you know, who were five years old when I met them and are now adults, and some of them who are, um, you know, uh, elderly people now. And I, you know, c- trying to communicate with as many of them as I could, and and hearing the fear uh, from them was really heartbreaking. And I just felt so helpless, you know. And and over the next three or four days, I fell into this fog that I don't know that I've ever experienced anything like this, but it was just suddenly, I was just completely consumed with this sadness and fear about what was happening over there and this total sense of helplessness. And I hated how helpless I felt in those few days. I'm communicating with friends and I don't know what I'm supposed to say to these friends. You know, stay safe. Uh, I love you. I wish there was something I could do to help. I don't know what to do right now. And after three or four days of that, it was Sunday evening, um, just you know, just after the the new invasion had begun, and I was watching the news, and I hadn't really slept. I really had not slept in three or four days. And I opened up Twitter, and I'd been tweeting about the Ukraine conflict for the past few days and sharing messages from people so that people could understand in the United States what people in Ukraine were saying about what was happening. And I, I opened up Twitter and I just tweeted and I said, I need to do something. I want to put together a fundraiser. Um, and within minutes, um, literally dozens of people were messaging me and texting me and calling me and saying, I, I want to help. I want to help. And by the next morning, uh, I had, um, with the help of some really incredible people, uh, had scheduled and arranged to have two big fundraisers happen that coming weekend. Um, so in, you know, four and five days away, uh, which was just, I don't know what I was thinking, trying to pull off events like that. I, I do events, you know, I do the storytelling shows. They take a long time and a lot of effort to put together and and these were going to be events that were a lot more complicated than, than those other things that I typically plan. But I had just so many people. I literally had over, I think, 100 active text chains happening by mid-Monday morning. And I, it was very, very overwhelming. And I was trying to figure out how to delegate things out. And okay, you, why don't you put together a silent auction? Why don't you try and figure out how to find us venue space? Why don't you know? And it was just a lot of kind of that logistics planning, that coordination. And, um, that evening, you know, I, it, that sort of took my day and that evening and then the next day. And I was just, I, I looked like hell. I truly did. I just, I had not been sleeping and I was not shaved and I, I don't think I'd changed my clothes in about three or four days. And, and, um, that evening at about probably seven 30, um, Skyler <laughs> who had been kind of helping and he was having his own very, very, very busy week. Uh, you know, he's in the middle of doing uh, graveyard shifts and rotations and all these different things at the hospital. And and he looked at me and he said, "You can't. This isn't sustainable. You can't do that. You can't. You can't do this. You need to get some rest." And I was like, "Skylar, I can't get rest. We have. We're doing these events. I'm trying to raise money to send over to some humanitarian organizations." And he took my phone from me. He fed me some melatonin. And he was like, you're going to bed right now and I will handle, I'll, you know, I'll handle this from here. And I later found out that he spent the rest of that evening, not only uh, kind of helping arrange things for these fundraisers that we were throwing, 
Um, but he had also started emailing my coworkers and telling them not to bother me. And he had emailed several, several attorneys that I work with and said, um, if you need something from Eli, call me and I will decide if he needs to hear from you. And, uh, and it was just, you know, he, he was, you know, protecting me and it was really helpful. And I slept for, I think, 13 straight hours, which I don't usually do. And woke up the next morning. It's amazing what rest can do because I woke up the next morning and suddenly I was like, oh, I can do this. We can do this. You know, and it was just that's that fresh, uh, you know, freshness sort of really helped. But so we, we ended up putting on these two events. We, we found um, some people who offered to match donations and um, some really, really generous offers from people inside and outside of Utah, actually. And so by the end of the, the week, we had ended up uh, raising $134,000. And then since then, we've brought in a little bit more. And so now we're around $155,000. And um, that was, I, I could not believe that response. I truly thought going into that, you know, maybe we can raise five or 10 grand this week and, and um, send it over to a couple of humanitarian organizations that are on the ground right now in Ukraine trying to provide medical supplies and and so forth. But we ended up cutting checks for, you know, around $75,000 to two organizations that, that I really like and um, believe in and believe are doing really great work right now. Um, and that in a lot of ways that week and that experience doing that really helped cure the feeling of helplessness. Um, I wasn't helpless anymore. Right. And I think the reason why we had such an incredible response from our local media and from people who wanted to help run the events and people who wanted to donate space and donate flowers and donate food. I, literally everything that went into doing these events was 100% donated. We didn't spend a penny putting these events together. Um, I, I think the reason why so many people wanted to do that and donate money as well is because so many of us were feeling that helplessness. And it was like, I, I, I kind of realized, okay, well, I, I'm familiar with Ukraine. I'm familiar with people there. I speak Ukrainian um, and I have a platform. Uh, I have an online platform. And so what I can do is I can collect all of that helpless energy from people that within my sphere and put it to use somewhere. And that that response was just so much bigger than I had really anticipated. And I, it, I'm really grateful for that. Away with words that helpless energy and channel it somewhere. Um, listeners that help contribute to this and care about Ukraine, thank you. Thank you for all the people that help make this happen. Um, it seems like, Eli, wherever you go and your fingerprints touch something, good things happen. You may not want to say that completely about you. <laughs> I but, don't know that that's true. <laughs> but, you know, you just have a life that seems like where you go and where you're committed you're lifting the hands of others and you're bringing peace and help and comfort. And in this case, significant financial help. And I'm sure a lot of emotional help to people you interacted with. And I love you've been gifted a lot of things and I love you using your gifts to lift the burdens and help others. Um, we're probably out of time, but I just keep thinking of things to talk about. You may need to go home. <laughs> um, you said a line earlier that I wrote down word for word that I thought was a great place for all of us to be excited to hang out with myself the rest of my life. What a great, what a great place for anybody to be mm -hmm. 
And I think our heavenly parents would want that for all of their children as part of their journey in mortality. And um, also I'm struck by the fact that, you know, because your road within the church didn't fit, that sometimes you've had to figure out things in a complex way that gives you skills to solve complex things. <laughs> that's the hypothesis that's been running in my mind is that your thoughtfulness, your having to draw from multiple sources, your own life journey has built within you skills that allow something like Ukraine to happen um, and just work with multiple communities across multiple sort of areas to bring people together. I don't know if that's true, but I just thought about that. I also thought about Equality Utah. We've really talked about that, but I'm Troy Williams, which I think is, is Troy's role. What is Troy's role? He's the director of Equality Utah. I remember when I became an ally and I've never shared this story and someday I'll maybe have Troy on the podcast. Love to have him on the podcast, but he spoke at Affirmation. I was a brand new ally and he said to the audience, he says, if you're in the church, stay in the church. Mm -hmm. I was really kind of surprised that somebody out of the church would say that to me. And he was, I realized that Troy is a bridge builder. Oh yeah. And I just thought everybody that left the church wanted everybody else to leave the church. Yeah. And I realized some do but I realize some don't. And uh, I then have been really impressed with Troy. Yeah. I'm tremendously impressed with the work he's done. Um, some of the best work that I think has been done legally, and you're much more familiar with that than I am, um, in our state and has been a role model for our state, many other states. And I think it's just terrific. And um, as listeners may know that I didn't think something would ever happen. Elder Oaks quoted Troy Williams. Yeah. In his Southern Virginia address, and I was on Twitter one day, and I, Troy said, I never thought that would happen. Yeah. I think Elder Oaks is trying in some ways to build this bridge by quoting Troy Williams. Um, and you may know the, more well, of the backstory on that. Yeah, what, what I can say, I, Troy is, I've, I've never met anybody who's better at their job than he is. And one of the reasons why he is so good at his job is he has true empathy for everybody. Uh, Troy loves, he loves everyone, uh, truly, sincerely loves everyone. And he's been a huge example to me in the last several years. He's, he's become a, a very, very close friend of mine. Um, but he has a, an ability to kind of see people where they are and love them where they are. Um, I, I had him actually tell a story on Strangerville uh, about his, his mother's funeral. Um, he went to his mother's funeral, uh, you know, I think it's maybe 15 years ago now or 20 years ago now. And uh, at her funeral, uh, her friends had planned to have an Elvis impersonator there at her funeral and to do Elvis impersonation, you know, songs. And Troy was just so angry at that because he thought it was so tacky. And, and he, did, he told this story about going through this experience of his mother's funeral and having sort of a piece come over him where he realized my job isn't to judge people for what they are, it's to love them where they are. And that that has been a really a guiding principle in his life. And you can see it if you spend any time with him, uh, you can see that in him, it, that, that love and, and empathy and, and joy for life really emanates from him in a really beautiful, beautiful way. And I absolutely think that you should invite him on and you can tell him that I volunteered him to be on this <laughs> podcast. Yeah. 
Um, I think listeners of the word Zion, and I used to, because I grew up in a very homogeneous part of Salt Lake City where everybody was the same as me, and I thought that was what Zion is. Maybe that's okay to think that, but Zion to me is um, finding common ground. It's not sameness is what I'm trying to say. It's Mm. finding unity and diversity. It's finding um, the way to work together. To me, sameness isn't we all become in the same political party in our congregations, but we look at our differences in a positive way to help solve significant problems. Mm. And um, to me, that that's that's Zion to me. So Troy Williams, you, and hopefully this podcast is creating a Zion where it's not sameness. There's a lot of differences between you and me, Eli. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, there's more things in common than there are differences. Mm-hmm. And, and I think those differences working together to solve things is Zion for me. Um, you mentioned your parents are active in the church, and do you want your parents to leave the church? And if not, why not? No. I, I don't have any desire for my family to do any particular thing with their religion. Uh, you know, I think their their faith journey needs to be their own. They have to own it. I don't wish one way or another for them. I, of course, want them to be open-minded. I want them to continue to embrace and support me. Um, but there's never been a part of me that has hoped or wanted them to leave uh, as long as they feel like it, their you know religion is providing value to them, uh, and it's helping make them better people, then that that's great. Um, now, if I might have a different feeling of that, if I felt like the religion was uh, hurting uh, a person in in one way or another, I might have kind of different hopes or wishes for them. But that hasn't been my experience with my parents. Listeners, I think it's a tremendous example of grace. Um, that even though this faith um, didn't, at the end of the day, have a place for you as you felt your best path forward is what you're on now. And there's fruits of that that seem really wonderful. It's the reality, and I just acknowledge that, that, you know, there isn't a place for you. And um, it makes me say that we should further put our arms around you with the reality of that instead of, the real villains of what's happening in Ukraine, obviously, it's not people like you and Skyler. And we should walk with you and we support you and celebrate your successes and want you to be successful. And I love the principle of self-determination, listeners, I, is we just let people self-determine their best path forward and try not to be too prescriptive. I do invite people to stay in the church, so I'm not completely neutral on that. Mm. I do invite people to, but I also, and I think it's part of our doctrine is let people self-determine or let people own their agency and just support them and leave any judgment at the feet of our, our savior, who's the perfect judge and just walk with people. So that's the way I navigate that. Um, I invite listeners and, you know, I feel like obviously we're not at the finish line here. I, I feel like, um, it would be wonderful and Skyler and, and Eli had more of an opportunity to participate in our church. And I don't, I don't know how, what that looks like. I sort of don't advocate for how this works out or I just invite us all in our circle of influence. If we're an ally to consider what we can do within our circle of influence to improve the experience for LGBTQ Latter-day Saints and use that allyship in a way 
but I also like the circle of influence. For me, that sort of gets me out of the anxiety world, Eli, because there's a lot of things I can't control. And I've sort of learned to say, this is my circle of influence. And everybody's got to, as an ally, figure out what that is for them. It may just be, not that just, it just may be your ability as a parent to just create a safe environment in your family for all your kids, whether they're straight or LGBTQ, if you're a local leader, to create a feeling that everybody's welcome here. I think at a congregation level, everybody should feel welcome. But it's hard when you don't hear consistently kind things about people like you. So that's all I've got. Eli, do you have anything else that came to your mind that we didn't get to or you'd like to share? I, I think my kind of just tagging onto what you said as sort of a closing thought. Uh, you know, I, I think it is a noble pursuit to create space wherever you are for people who are different than you. And, you know, I, for myself, I, I, I'm not interested in, in going back to the church. That's not something that I, I don't, I truly don't think at this point that there are changes that could be made at the church uh, that would get me to come back. I've kind of found a different path for myself, but I do wish that there were people that there were, that there was more room for people who want to stay in that institution to feel more welcome than I felt when I was trying to stay in it. And so I absolutely applaud anybody who is like you, Richard, working to to make a more welcome place for those types of people who want to be in that space. Um, Listeners, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Eli, particularly for sharing your story. Uh, My advice is write your own story. Um, You've got to own your own story, but take principles from all the stories you're hearing on these podcasts from all different walks, uh, different people are walking this and Um, Use this to make, I think when you have better information, you make better decisions in your own journey. And this has been a wonderful story, Um, principle-based story of just Eli being really honest and vulnerable. Um, Terror is the word that I wrote down a few times (laughs) where you were. And it's, you know, to be in that spot and the realities of your situation and that double bind and where you are now just support you. And I'm glad you're on the podcast and thanks listeners for listening. This is Eli McCann and Richard Osler signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.